Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are now for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. Today, this very day, we're going to thrust ourselves back into the pages of the New Yorker magazine, thumbing through, looking looking at the cartoons, and then finding <laughs> the poem of the day. And in this case, what we were able to find. And I gotta say that the New Yorker has put a, a kind of kink in our thing. You know, they usually publish like two or maybe three poems in an issue, usually two. And, uh, you know, our experience has been they put the poem up online and then they put up the audio portion, you know, of the poet reading. And there were a number of poems for us to choose from, one by Charles Simmons. Apparently a fairly short one, but no audio. He didn't read it for us. So we're going to, bing, you know, knock that off the table. And then there was a Jory Graham poem that started off very promising, but all they give you is what, you know, we would call in the business a nib. Like they just you give you the first couple lines. Give the audio portion of it. It's a fairly lengthy poem, took like uh, two and a half minutes to read, you know, decent size, seemingly super interesting, entering the funhouse of the first person singular pronoun. I was really into doing, but then, you know, we can't get at it. And so the poem that we have, and it's not so much sort of as a matter of default per se, like we gave up, but just the fact that this is all we got. So the poem we're going to do today is entitled Half-Life in Exile. And the author of this poem is Hala Alyan. Okay, here it is. Ready? Half-Life in Exile. I'm forever living between Aprils. The air here smells of jacarandas and lime. It's sunset before I know it. I'm supposed to rest, but that's where the children live. In the hot mist of sleep, dream after dream, instead, I obsess. I draw stars on receipts. Everybody loves the poem. It's embroidered on a pillow in Milwaukee. 
it's done nothing for Palestine. There are plants out west that emerge only after fires. They listen for smoke. I wrote the poem after weeks of despair, hauling myself like a rock. Everyone loves the poem. The plants are called fire followers, but sometimes it's after the rains. At night, I am a zombie feeding on the comments. Is it compulsive to watch videos? Is it compulsive to memorize names? Rafif and Ammar and Mahmoud, poppies and snapdragons and calendrinias, I can't hear you. I can't hear you under the missiles. A plant waits for fire to grow. A child waits for a siren. It must be a child, never a man, never a man without a child. There is nothing more terrible than waiting for the terrible. I promise. Was the grief worth the poem? No. But you don't interrogate a weed for what it does with wreckage, for what it's done to get here. Hmm. So it seems to be a woman. It does seem to be a woman. I must say I love her name. Hala al Yan. It's a beautiful name. Yeah. Better, a better name than the uh, title of the poem, I think. It would have been better to call it Hala al Yan by Half Life in Exile. <clears throat> I just think Half Life in Exile is a pretty kind of corny name, title for a poem. Yeah, it's interesting that Half Life is hyphenated. Um, yeah. You know, usually we associate half-life with nuclear isotopes. Right. A half-life, I guess, I believe, is the time that it takes for a nuclear isotope for half of it to break down. Mm-hmm. For half of it to... Uh, I don't know what breakdown means. I don't know enough about nuclear physics. But anyway, half-life... And that's... It's interesting. It's half-life, I guess... Since we're not dealing with the na- with the nature of the atomic realm, must mean like half life elsewhere and then half life here, and being in exile, this feeling of being in a twilight, half lit, half life state, hmm. or half a life in exile. Oh, I don't. Or is it related to some sort of process of the breaking down? And, and hmm. you know, the disappearing, which I guess would also attach to, like, memory, maybe, of some place that one has come from. And I suspect Palestine. I suspect uh, this is a Palestinian person who's, um, her English is excellent. So I think she yeah. spends time in the U.S., not that we want to do that kind of forensics, and yet her uh, pronunciation of Rafif and Amar and Mamoukht was uh, sounded like perfect Arabic. One gets the sense that she's purely bilingual, that rare state that only a few people are in where their both languages are, are equally proficient. Just yeah. my guess. Yeah, totally. And plus that sort of sense of half-life is nowhere more intimately experienced that in language you know that sense mm. of being half one half one language half another language and that feeling of cheating on the other language when you use the other language mm. right? maybe I don't know for what it's done to get here though it's interesting you know one of the sort of 
tropes in those kind of poems, those exilic poems, <laughs> is to use uh, the words from the other language, which she doesn't do. She uses names, <clears throat> but she doesn't stick in, you know, I'm wearing my chamzuz today, you know. She doesn't, she doesn't go exactly for the exotic. In fact, she kind of goes in the other direction when she says, it's embroidered on a pillow in Milwaukee, which is really a very good line. Kind of goes for the prosaic American over the exotic uh, Middle Eastern. Uh-huh. It's possible yeah. that she grew up in Milwaukee. That is a real possibility. Or lived in Milwaukee. Or, or her grandmother lives in Milwaukee. Maybe. Yeah. Or that there's some relative in Milwaukee. I mean, I always associate Milwaukee with Schaefer beer. <laughs> is the one beer to have. I think um, it's beer that made Milwaukee famous. That's yeah, right. you know that uh, you know that country western song, the the beer that made Milwaukee famous made a loser out of me. Well, I, I definitely get the sense that uh, the I'm not going on any sort of um, biographical knowledge. I don't know anything about the poet, but I do get the sense that she has been in um, exile in America for um, a long period of time. And um, yeah, I mean, everything that you mentioned seems to. Um, Sam seems to corroborate that. And also, um, yeah, there seems to be a, a, something of a survivor's guilt mm. quality in the poem that suggests to me that she she's living a, a comfortable American life. Right. In the second line, she says, the air here smells of jacarandas and lime. And since she says it's embroidered on a pillow in Milwaukee a few lines later, that implies she's not in Milwaukee. Where is there in the USA that smells of jacarandas and lime? She might be back in Palestine writing this poem. Because she says, there is nothing more terrible than waiting for the terrible. I promise. Doesn't that sort of imply that she's in, maybe in Gaza even, in some horrific place where the bomb is about to fall? I don't Which, know, because she's at night, I am a zombie, feeding on the comments. Is it compulsive to watch videos? I'm imagining her uh, stateside um, keeping up with what's happening in, in Palestine, but not, not being there. If she were actually there, would she be feeding on the comments? Would she be hmm. watching the videos of what's happening um, hmm. in terms of the Israeli occupation and the... Uh, dropping a bomb, so on and so forth. I don't know. Would she be memorizing the names? All of this seems to suggest to me that she's in a different geographical and political region. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's interesting that we've, you know, happily kind of glommed on to seeking to, through the poem, constitute an, a, the writer, the author, the poet, um, you know, that we're not like looking at the text, you know, we're looking at the text, we're looking through the text, trying to establish some context <clears throat> which it was written, which I find sort of interesting. At the same time, I mean, she does definitely give us the threshold for entering the state of the poem. 
you know, the first line, I'm forever living between Aprils. You know, I think that it's difficult, you know, in a poem to bring April in without, you know, one that appeal with the shortest Lota, you know, <laughs> you know the, the, the Chaucer. And then, you know, the way in which uh, Mr. Elliot, the right. racist, um, picks up on, you know, April is the cruelest month. You know, and April is the is National Poetry Month or something like mm, that, right? Good point. So I, yeah, I just sort of feel like she's always living between poetic states. Mm. You know, between a poetic occasion or valorization, say. And also the fact that we're discussing this is basically attests to the to the fact that you don't know where she is in the poem. I mean, I think that also the reason we're discussing where she is is because she seems to be in a place. She says the air here smells uh-huh. of jacarandas and lime. Where is that here? Is the here uh, some non-physical place? Uh, is it a place of memory? That's yeah, yeah. not impossible. For what it's done to get here. Yeah, I mean, I feel like she lives between two places. You know, she lives in an interesting place. Hmm. You, know, as, you know, just sort of playing with the word interest. Um, and yeah, it's it's sunset before I know it. Like a yeah. sunset. And then I'm supposed to rest. That's interesting. I'm supposed to rest. You know, I'll, uh, I think it's time for you to rest. We recommend that you rest. I'm supposed to rest. And then it says, and then, you know, she writes, say, but that's where the children live. Yeah, that's a great line. I was really against this poem until that line came. Oh, yeah, you were against this poem for the first three lines and then into the fourth line. Yeah, up until but. But that's where the children live. I just thought, like, I'm forever living. Everything before that just... Sounded to me very New Yorkerish, kind of bourgeois. The way everything in the New Yorker just seems to be about the same goddamn upper middle class person, no matter where they are. Greece, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, it doesn't yeah. matter. They they always have these elegant yeah. uh, accoutrement like jacarandas and lime. Yeah, I don't and, even know what jacaranda is. It is possible that people write for the New Yorker. And, you know, one could hypothesize that the first three lines were like a hook Yeah. the New Yorker. So they'd be like, oh, this <clears throat> sounds like one of our poems. And then by that fourth line, when Sparrow's heart rose into the uh, chrysalis. Rose to the bait. Rose to the bait. There it was. But that's where the children live. I don't live in rest. Uh, yeah. As for rest, you know, we've got eternity for that. Can I add something onto what you just said? It, it's intriguing, Sparrow's um, appreciation of that line, and Sam, your um, wager that uh, the poem perhaps begins in a familiar New York genre and then shifts at the line that Sparrow appreciated. I noticed um, after the line about children, Pretty much, 
the lines, uh, with a few exceptions, the lines that follow are sentences that don't grow into multi-line images mm. or thought units. Uh, and the, it, except the opening, um, to my ear at least, and to my eye. And uh-huh. this, this poem is all about what does or doesn't grow mm-hmm. in the wake of, in the wake of violence, tragedy. Whether it's the destruction of the wildfires or the bombs falling in Gaza, in Palestine, um, it's just a, a stylistic observation that struck me just now. Hmm. That's a really great point. Well, uh, really great point. You're right. It goes into like a whole series of um, kind of staccato short sentences, and they do appear to. Uh, not exactly clash, but sort of be disparate. And also, stochastic, to me... The word is stochastic. Oh, nice. I know that word, but I don't know what it means. Uh, I've looked it up, I'm pretty sure. Uh, to me, also, like, the next lines are, in the hot mist of sleep, period. Dream after dream, period. Instead, I obsess, period. I draw stars on receipts, period. And then that leads up to what I think is a great line. Everybody loves the poem. What does that mean? Like, everything up till that point has at least some linear logic, something Uh that we can understand what it refers to. You know, even though the line, that's where the children live, is a little obscure or abstract, then immediately afterwards he says, in the hot mist of sleep, I guess she means children sleep very deeply unlike adults who were full of anxiety. But then, when she gets to Everybody Loves the Poem, it's embroidered on a pillow in Milwaukee. It's done nothing for Palestine. Now she's really in a private uh, syntax. She's discussing something that we don't know what it is. Is it some poem that somebody wrote that her grandmother had embroidered on a pillow in Milwaukee, some reassuring little doggerel, like, you know, every day in every way I get better, that's what I say, you know, and that does nothing for Palestine. Who knows? Very unclear. It might be this poem that she's talking about. I think it's either this poem or a previous poem that she wrote on Palestine that that maybe um, received a high-profile publication, and she's getting um, lots of positive feedback, and that feels good. Um, but it doesn't do anything to help the, the plight of the Palestinians. And then, you know, and that's where also a real guilt line, it's done nothing for Palestine, like that she, I know I had that interpretation first also, yeah. but I, I don't think someone gets a poem published in uh, the American Poetry Review and then embroiders it on a pillow in Milwaukee. That does not seem like a familiar concept to me that's yeah, what leads I, me to I, think it's I, some I, kind of ch- cheesy little poem yeah I, I sort of resist that kind of normative oh she wrote a good poem and people dug it and then everybody yeah and then it got embroidered on a pillow but then she felt kind of guilty because it didn't help I, I you know one of the things I, I think about, you know, in terms of the life of an artist is that which is 
represented by Richard Dreyfuss in the Spielberg movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss plays this Shamil who lives like in California or one of these like dopey places like that and then has some kind of experience or is family member, his son or something, and then he becomes obsessed with the Devil's Tower. Yes. <clears throat> Which, you know, spoiler alert, where the aliens come, right? And that kind of obsessiveness, where he's mm. taking mashed potatoes and turning it into... <laughs> you remember? And he goes oh, out yeah, it's an unforgettable takes it into the living room and makes a devil's tower and that kind of thing. I sort of feel that thing of uh, drawing stars on the receipt um, has a little bit of that flavor. Mm. Um, that kind of obsessiveness, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's a little more ambivalent because with the close encounters of the third kind, we find out that the the shapes he's making in the uh, mashed potatoes become crucial to the plot of the movie, whereas in this poem, the stars on the receipts are not really developed. We don't see them. They don't seem to prefigure anything. Well, no, I, I would, I would, ar I would argue that you know she writes of the terrible. Uh, you know, in the in the later lines of the poem, uh, there's nothing more terrible than waiting for the terrible. See, I, I feel like the Dreyfus character has had some kind of shock. He's received some kind of displacement, mm -hmm. some abrupt, violent displacement that causes him to enter into this obsessive field. And mm -hmm. I feel, I guess I would hypothesize that Hala, through familial association or through her own experience, has been through war, has been through sudden violence, has hmm. been under attack, has been in the range of the sirens going on and so uh, going off and so on and so forth. And her response to that is the stars on the receipt. Is this poeta? Is the uh, you know, pointing a, a siphon, getting a siphon into the poetic continuum, out of which words or whatever pours out. And then she's very uh, clear, there are plants out west that emerge only after fires. Yeah. It's like these plants that emerge after the fire are those plants that emerge out of, you know, such devastation as... We've witnessed in Gaza, you know, in the near, you know, just a few months ago. Yeah. Well, and also, so almost a kind of a feeling that the plants grow out of the devastation of the fire in a similar way that the stars appear on the receipts as a kind of unconscious regeneration. Like yeah. my image of her is like she's drawing on, she's on the phone with someone, she's doodling. She uh, hangs up the phone and she thinks, oh, I just drew a bunch of stars. I didn't quite realize that these are stars or they look like stars. It's funny. I picture them just as like lines, radiating lines. 
And then she looks at him and is like, oh, these look like stars. And it's like her unconscious <laughs> wants to regenerate herself the way a forest regenerates. The lines that proceed from that seem to reinforce some kind of reading in that, ter- in that terrain. Yeah. I don't think, though, that she feels um, she's quite at the place of this um, regenerative plant that grows after the fire. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm noticing the uh, image of the weed in the third to last line. Was the, mm. gr- was the grief worth the poem? Was the grief worth the poem? No, but you don't interrogate a weed for what it's done to get here. For what it's done to get here. I d- I'm thinking immediately of the uh, the first and last botanical image. The jacaranda is, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a beautiful, full, blue plant. It's indigent to South America, to Brazil. It's a subtropical plant. Uh, it's become very popular in the United States. You'll often encounter it hanging off of porch latticework. Um, mm. And it's a, it's a plentiful plant. It's a very full-looking plant, as I said, compared to the uh, the weed. I don't know exactly where I'm going here, but I, I just I feel as if she wants to create something in response to this trauma, but it's it's not quite forthcoming. Maybe that's what I'm forever living between April's means. Now that I think of it, is uh, April is when spring comes, right? And uh, and she's not quite there yet. She's not quite in the April. She's still kind of in the. Uh, the kind of the end, the, the dying end of winter, not quite into the, the regeneration. Even though the next line is, the air here smells of jacarandas and lime, but maybe she's not living quite there where she is. Somewhat analogously, um, you're, I have this recollection from years ago when I was taking a seminar on John Milton, Hmm. With the great Miltonist at Harvard University, Barbara Lewalski, I believe that was her name, in the English department. And we were reading Milton's poem, Lycidas, hmm. which is the he wrote to, I believe, a friend of his who passed, somebody he, he knew who died. I'm forgetting the specifics. But uh, Barbara Lewalski said, uh, oh, he wasn't really in grief when he wrote this. Hmm. That, um there's just there's too much uh, um, there's too much generativity in the poem. There's too much beauty in the poem. This is not something that he could have written until much later. Or hmm. she, she was questioning the uh, I guess, veracity of the the mourning that's listed by the poem. That hmm. if he were really in deep mourning, he wouldn't be able to produce mellifluous language. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a fairly conventional trope, you know, it's, uh, you know, Wordsworth's, uh, you know, strong emotion recollected in tranquility, right? That's his definition of what is poetry, right? Isn't something like that? I guess it's sort of a process thing where you have a, a powerful experience, you know, like, the bomb goes off, and you know things like bad news, etc., etc. Some sort of perhaps war trauma, something like that. And then there's the process of recollecting yourself around the wound, 
around the damage that's been done. And that kind of idea of embroidering is also sort of like, you know, that's, that's pretty speculative. But I mean, the, you know, and certainly this idea, uh, was the grief worth the palm? But I do like her short staccato line, the, you know, this like, cow with the palm, you know, straight as, uh, uh, as Sparrow says, you know, this, like, direct, Argot, you know, American Argot, direct sheet. Was the grief worth the pump? Good question. No. But you hmm. don't interrogate a weed for what it does with the wreckage. Mm-hmm. A weed. Interesting. Weeds growing up after the fire. This palm is a weed. Is that what she's saying? It's interesting. The possibility of anything growing out of that devastation. Yeah, because the wildfires are devastating, um, but there's something natural about that process. Mm. Unless it's man-made, unless it's a product of human error. Uh, wildfires break down forests and prepare for new growth. There's something um, cyclical, natural about it, as opposed to human beings, oppressive beings, dropping bombs on children. Mm-hmm. That it hard to grow anything there other than um, weeds. And, and the same is true, I think, of an area that has been um, exposed to radioactive isotopes, right? Hmm. Not much growth there for a period of time. Hmm. But I don't know enough about um, radioactivity to say that definitively in imagine. Yeah. I guess it had to, if there's really a lot of radioactivity, it might be true. Or maybe the opposite, right? The plants might grow wildly. I don't know if I'm just basing this all on uh, science fiction movies from the 1950s, but where yeah. the you know a little mouse becomes um, multiplied into a giant monster because it was in the. Um, I think that's what Godzilla. I think Godzilla was created by the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. Am I wrong about that? It was some little lizard that got exposed to. The uh, bomb explosion and therefore grew into a massive, grotesque creature. Uh-huh. One thought that I, I had about weeds is, I was trying to remember the word. The word is invasive. A lot of the, a lot of our most prevalent weeds are exiles. They're from another country. And that's mm. why they grow like wild around here because they, uh, they don't have enemies or somehow they, they sort of fall between the cracks of the local ecosystem and can take over. So that is another relationship between exile and weeds. Excellent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I wanted to also point out there's um, these other uh, flowers in the poem. You know, she has that category of names, Rafif, Amar, and Amud. Mm. Isn't that good Arabic, Sarah? Quite anyway. good, yeah. I think yeah. you're getting there as an Arabic speaker. I'm getting there. And then she goes, poppies and snapdragons and calendrinias. I don't know what those... Snapdragons, indigenous... I, I think we have snapdragons kicking around here. We have well, poppies, right? I think they're from... Afghanistan, right? Oh, um, they certainly grow there. Yeah, but I guess... Isn't there a, a 
there's a famous poem, right? In the in the fields, the poppies grow row by row. It's a tragic World War One poem about um, the dead in Belgium, I think. So I think they're pretty widespread poppies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then you know, it goes on. I can't hear you. I can't hear these these names. Are they children? I, I don't know. And then I can't hear you. I can't hear you under the missiles. Hmm. Um, the threat of missiles. The actual uh, passage of missiles across the sky. Yeah, I just think it's, I hadn't really noticed this before, that uh, the way she has three names of people, which I seem to me all male, but I could be wrong about that. Rafif and Omar and Mahmoud. (laughs) And then right after that, poppies and snapdragons and calandrinias, as if Rafif is poppies, Omar is snapdragons, Mahmoud is calandrinias. I'd, and then, yeah, it's a strange, uh, it's a strange transition. It's another part of the poem where she seems to be just spurting out whatever is in her mind. You know, it's amazing that the New Yorker published this poem that, in some ways, is a very unconscious poem, and there's also uh, quite a political poem and a political poem about Palestine, which you know is going to piss off certain people. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, in a yeah. way, it's it's safer to publish it as a poem than as an essay, mm-hmm. uh, where people because nobody reads the poems in the New Yorker, so it's sort of safe in there to make a kind of serious statement. Uh huh. Yeah. And then immediately following, you know, a plant waits for fire to grow. Mm. Um, the fire, this kind of the terrible, perhaps, and then she then. A child waits for a siren. It must be a child. Never a man, never a man without a child. And then that, you know, there is nothing more terrible than waiting for the terrible. Mm. Yeah. Again, that kind of half-life, like when you're aware of the terrible and then waiting for the terrible, that's a twilight half-life state, isn't it? Hmm. For what it's done to get here, I was it's not able to engage with the presence present because you are preoccupied with the other shoe or the other missile that's going to drop. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know when it really happens, it's terrible, but it's uh, what's the word uh, uh, comprehensible in a way, whereas the terrible that hasn't quite happened. The dread is is beyond the the comprehensible, beyond comprehension. It kind of uh, spirals into a like a like uh, Godzilla. It becomes a giant creature. The, the, the fear and anxiety. I, I'm suddenly have this theory that uh, you know it's funny. I didn't even really when she said, "Is it compulsive to watch videos?" I'm a compulsive video watcher, so this is a question I ask myself a lot. It didn't occur to me that she's watching videos about Palestine, though it does seem perfectly logical in, in Andrew's um, gloss of it. It's almost like that visual quality 
of watching videos kind of pushes the poem into another area where suddenly she's no longer making kind of syntactical sense. You know, is it compulsive to watch videos? Is it compulsive to memorize names? Rafif and Amar and Mahmoud. And that makes logical sense. And then Poppies and Snapdragons and Calendrinias follows immediately, which are it's completely great. unclear what she's talking about, but it's kind of like the logic of a of a YouTube video where you're listening to some song by the B-52s and suddenly there's a image of somebody surfing and then there's a volcano and then there's uh, three women buying bread in uh, Italy and and you, you, your mind gets kind of pushed into this surrealist uh, logic that everyone takes completely for granted as if it's like a logical thing that you should be watching, you know, every three seconds another arbitrary image. But it's almost like the uh, this poem kind of becomes a, a music video. Q, right? Q of YouTube videos. I think in popular speech, when we refer to videos now, it's only YouTube, right? Well, I mean, there's Vimeo. YouTube video, but we don't really refer to other um, visual forms as videos anymore, do we? Uh -huh. That's true. Yeah. Right. Like in the 80s, you would say, we're going to watch a video tonight. Right. That meant video a, store. a VHS. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. For what it's done to get here. Certainly Sparrow and I and you too, Andrew, I'm not sure what you were doing on 9-11. But I do recall, like, after, afterward, and in the weeks afterward, this is kind of compulsive, uh, attachment that I experienced of watching the news, you know? Like, watching the same, you know, blah, watching the news, watching obsessive magnetism to that experience. And it seems to me that, you know, these are all things that, for example, you know, if one hypothesizes that she's a Palestinian exile and is then like away from the West Bank, away from Gaza, away from the violence, that she's being drawn to these videos, you know, and doing these sort of obsessive things that one does after trauma, after you've, um, you know, experienced something that cuts through you with whatever, you know, degrees of um, mortality and, uh, disfigurement, um, et cetera, et cetera, the, you know, war leaves behind. Um, they're all kind of obsessive activities. And then I would posit that she's sort of making an analogy between the poem and these vegetable flowering phenomena. Mm -hmm. You know, which seems to be there in the beginning you know, around when she talks about everyone loves the poem, and then mm. it's reinforced here, and then at the end it's also present when she's talking about the poem, and then juxtaposition with that we. I mean, this is, this is what occurred to me, is that back in the day when I was studying tr a Trinity, you know, studying Anglo-Saxon, I used to go into London, and I would stay with this woman a Scottish woman, you know, sort of well-to-do, you know, like second-tier aristocracy kind of person, uh, you know, very nice, 
person who is a friend of my mom. And she has been the girlfriend or the lover of Galway Canal, the American, you know, Irish-American poet, whatever. Very popular in the 70s, like super popular, 70s, 80s, 60s, really coming out of, I think, the poem bearing the initial of Christ into the New World, uh, blah, 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 a bunch of good things. The Avenue. I think it's the The Avenue bearing the initial of Christ. And she was talking to me about, like, you know, hanging out with Galway and then living in France with Galway. And that what Galway would do while he was sort of being Anne's girlfriend is he would wander into town. Galway was a very handsome man. And he would like <laughs> to girls and, um, you know, engage with them concubescently and then go back <laughs> to Anne. And I was like, Wow. So you're saying like he was stepping out with you and she said, yeah, uh, Galway had satirism. Satirism. <laughs> uh, yeah, she, he had, yeah. I mean, it was terrible. He, had he was pretty epic. Yeah. And she said, and I said, oh, well, why did you put up with that? And she said, well, you know, we have to, uh, and I was kind of like blown away by this statement. She said, artists are unique and we should let them do whatever they want because mm. whatever they want to do is related to the painting the, or the sculpture or the quartet, uh, the uh, you know symphony or the poem that they're going to produce and that, you know, that it's worth it. And so, you know, I like that she's saying you know, was was the grief worth it? And she says, no, comma, mm-hmm. new line. But you don't interrogate a weed for what it does with the wreckage. I think she's saying, no, the occasion of the s- strong emotion, you know, this, this grief, this wreckage, the uh, devastation left by a missile exploding, it's not worth it which I appreciate, for what it's done to get here. That's also, I think, that era has ended, the era of the genius poet, the genius artist, the Picasso who stands astride the world like a demigod and obviously can pick up any woman, romance her, cast her aside. That's his uh, due. That's what he deserves as a... He's a giant. He's, a, he's not like a human being. He's a great artist, a genius. And that era is over, I think. I, I think nobody believes that anymore. Not just political people, not just Palestinian activists. And, and that the idea that the, the person, the great writer, cre- you know, leaves, what was there, some great line in, uh, uh, Fitzgerald about they left wreckage behind them wherever they went. The, the great artist produces yeah. the great poem and that have a, has a right to do anything because the poem is so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that, Sparrow. And I, and I would wish it to be true that nobody buys that uh, line anymore, except for the fact that we <laughs> just lived through a period in which that very much occurred in relation to Agent Orange. 
you know, what? even prior to the election of Agent Orange, <laughs> we knew what kind of person he was, and they, and it was also connected to uh, to sort of purian activity, not just purian activity, but incredibly vulgar language and this dopey whatever it is, you know, all that garbage uh, celebrity whatever, nephew, I guess, of George Bush, putting the mic to Trump, and Trump saying, like, bestial things. And there was an enormous groundswell of Americans who were able to set that aside. Well, I mean, actually, at first he took a giant uh, slump in the polls after that, and then he went to Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon gave him this secret plan to be a complete racist, and that uh, revived his um, his uh, luck, you know. So uh, it's not, yeah, it is interesting. There is some kind of, I mean, in a, but it's it has a lot to do with reality TV, and it has to do with what I don't know what you would call it, sort of auto Schadenfreude, a person who makes themselves. Uh, self-destructive, someone who makes themselves grotesque because, and then you can't stop watching their eternal descent. Uh -huh. I mean, that... Schadenfreude would mean that you also take pleasure in your own fall. Yeah. Which wouldn't be characteristic of Agent Orange. Um... He's willing to make himself infinitely pathetic in order to be infinitely famous. And that is kind of, uh, that's uh, the um, uh, reality TV ideal. And uh, it's somebody who used to be famous, is kind of down in their luck, and now is just fascinatingly a mess, and you can't stop watching them. You want to know whom they're going to ch pick out of the 12 bachelorettes. Um, but the point is, it's the inverse of genius. It's the opposite of genius. It's, ah. it's not that you're larger than humans. It's more like you're, you're a microorganism, kind of, that, that everyone's watching under the microscope. At least, for me, my obsession with Trump was kind of, to diagnose him, to understand him, to psychoanalyze him, because he was so twisted. And I think there was a lot of that in everyone, even in his devoted fans. They recognized he's a deeply wounded guy, and that's interesting. Whereas I think it was believed at one time that Jackson Pollock was like like a, a perfected man, like a, a person who's kind of, we're all trying to evolve to the point where we can make those kind of paintings. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I do have a new theory about the poppies and snapdragons and calendrinias. Oh, uh, what is it? Because uh, it's a very literal theory, like well, most of my theories. Uh, so I'll read these four lines. Uh, is it compulsive to memorize names? Rafif and Amar and Mahmoud. Poppies and snapdragons and calendrinias. I can't hear you. I can't hear you under the missiles. So here's a person, this poet, who's went to Princeton. She's a very educated American person, 
She's back visiting her family in Gaza. The missiles are falling. She really cannot handle it. And so she starts either internally or uh, external, actually speaking it, uh, just reciting everything she can remember, the names of every person she saw on YouTube the night before, the name of every flower she can remember, and just to take her mind off the tension that she's living under. And, and so she can't hear. And then her mother is talking to her like, Paula, would you like some more Baba Ganoush? <laughs> this is my image of life in Gaza. And and she says, I can't hear you. I can't hear you beneath these names that I'm reciting like mantras to to hypnotize myself away from from the moment. I mean, I think that a, that a literal interpretation of you um, tricky. I'm not sure. I mean, I sort of read it that a you is that which makes the weed, the flower, uh, that which emerges after the fire, the poem, hmm. that, that makes it grow. I can't hear you. That, that's how I saw it. I, I, I also, I think this idea of the compulsiveness, it, re- it reminds me of F. Scott Fitzgerald. It reminds me of the, the uh, crack up. Remember where I guess his doctor or something had said, "Oh, well, you know, write down the names of baseball players. You know, write down all your girlfriends. Like just that thing of, of writing lists as a mode of huh. of, of come, bring it coming back to uh, coming back to quote unquote yourself after a crackup." Hmm. Yeah, you know, I was just reading this book by Frank Kermode, very famous book, The Sense of an Ending, mm-hmm. about apocalyptic literature. And he writes about this um, this British text written during the Second World War, uh, a text written by a British soldier who was in captivity. I'm forgetting the name of the text, but it's it, in that text, the gentleman keeps his sanity by, li- by listing things. Hmm. But very much in line with what you're saying, Sam. Yeah, yeah. This this has elements of being a list poem, in a, in a way like a, a Whitman poem. It keeps uh, returning to uh, litanies of things like Tacharandas and Lime. It's kind of it deviates from the list, but it returns to the list. Yeah, and I know uh, on the back of receipts, I often will list things. <laughs> in receipts, what I have to do, or, um, you know, the order of various events. Um, hmm. I, I hear what you're saying about the uh, the list poem, and the, 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 li- the individual items in the list poem want to grow into something, again, to return to my earlier thesis, but can't hmm. quite manage it. They're, you hmm. know, there are these weeds, but there are no um, decorations for what it's done to get here. Hmm. Hmm. Although I like the last line a lot, that's really what kind of turned me utterly in favor of the poem. Is because uh, I really don't like that line. Uh, no, but you don't interrogate a weed for what it does with wreckage. It just strikes me as awkward and too poetic. I understand what she's saying, but I don't like the way she's saying it. Uh, it seems New Yorkerish. And then the last line, for what it's done to get here. I get a little bit that 
that uh, direct American speech that uh, Sam was uh, referring to earlier. And I just think it's a surprisingly good line, an interesting and simple and very un-New Yorkerish line. Like, like what I say about all academic poets is they all end every poem with the word light. You know, every poem has to end. And then we marched, reaching upwards always to the light. And uh, it's completely yeah. oppressive. And th this is kind of the opposite for what it's done to get here. And that's what the poem has done. The poem has gotten here. Where is here? We still don't know. But it's the poem has kind of gone on this journey and reached here, literally and figuratively. Underscore, underscoring her establishment of the, uh, the weed or the plant and the poem as being interchangeable, not synonymous, but, you know, mm -hmm. part of the, the, the same creative urge, as Whitman mm -hmm. would say. Urge, urge, the procreative urge. You know, mm -hmm. well, what... Okay, so the question is, oh, well, what has the we done to get here? That mm -hmm. is, the fire has come, there's a the demolition... Uh, you know, through a missile attack, say, there's wreckage, uh, and then the weed out of that charred place, um, the weed emerges. Well, what's the weed done? I don't get your question. I mean, the weed well, just... Well, I guess the answer to the question, the weed hasn't done diddly squat. The weed, all the weed has done has waited for its time to come so that it can mm. emerge. Yeah. We, you know, he also serves who only stands and waits, you know, that sort of Miltonian sense. You know, that the weed just happens spontaneously, organically, but at what cost? And also in a very literal sense, the Israelis keep bombing Gaza, and they don't destroy Gaza, they kill people. But Gaza reasserts itself, reorganizes itself, it grows back up. Right. And so it really, you know, it's not just the plant that does it, but the people do it too. Although right. I must say, Sam, I disagree with your theory that she has suffered some terrible trauma. Because my guess is, partly just from listening to her voice and a little bit from her syntax, I think her problem is that she hasn't suffered trauma or hasn't suffered enough trauma. That's what I meant by the survivor guilt. Oh. Yeah. That, ah, oh, this guy. Yeah. That she is the embroidered yeah. pillow in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, on some level. Um, yeah, her, it's, it, her, her experience has been without the sort of trauma that her brethren, her brethren are experiencing in, in the Gaza Strip, elsewhere in Palestine. And that there's yeah. guilt there. Yeah, I think oh. that seems uh, to me more likely. I mean, she does say there is nothing more terrible than waiting for the terrible. I promise. I promise implies that she's experienced it. But I yeah. think that she's experienced it in homeopathic amounts. You know, I could be terribly wrong. I, I, maybe, no, I, what do I yeah. know? But that's my feeling. Yeah, I totally appreciate your adjusting what I said and really 
correcting its trajectory because I, I believe that that is more in keeping with this idea of the half-life. That mm. kind of thing where you're forced to experience something from afar and are only able to go there sort of in this halfway, you know, and through an imaginative, um, sympathetic field. I mean, Andrew, is there anything Susan Sontag would be able to say about this poem? <laughs> hmm. Uh, are you thinking of regarding the pain of others? Yeah, I guess I am. Yeah, I am. And we... Well, she, she, you know, she does write it in, in, in that chapter, in that chapter regarding the pain of others, which is also the title of the book. She does write about, um, if my memory serves correct, how um, when we're watching videos or looking at photographs of faraway um, war-torn regions, um, we can experience this false sympathy that's curtailed the moment that the video is turned off. That mm. that empathy, to paraphrase some of her language, needs to be um, cultivated practice, or else it withers like a vine. Mm. Uh-huh. Right. And that right. There's, there's danger in, um, I guess, like, feeling bad about someone else's trauma and feeling as if feeling bad is enough. Hmm. Hmm. Right. And there's a, there's a kind of radiation and that this kind of experience of the video empathy is kind of like uh, being radioactively poisoned. And it's sort of, it's unseen, hmm. uh, the radioactive... Um, disease comes at you, you know, through this unseen force um, that degrades the, that our capacity to feel empathy, to feel compassion. But uh, it's, it, it's a false morality because you read the poem about Sarajevo or uh, the Gaza Strip and the New Yorker and you recognize the plight feel as if you've done something so you've had the feeling. Hmm. Right. Exactly, that, yeah. That's what Sontag critiques. That's one of her critiques. My memory serves correct. Yeah. But maybe we're doing a little more because we're really attempting to truly understand this poem. Maybe we're doing a little bit more for the people of Palestine than... Uh, than someone who just reads this poem and forgets about it a, a moment later. I don't know. I'm not saying we are, but it seems possible that we are. We're at least, we're making a big effort of some sort. We think of it as literary, but I think this poem forces us really to, to confront the connections between the ethical, the political, and the literary that you can't really, you know, or rather you feel like a, idiot if you merely uh, address this poem from a literary point of view without discussing the political issues and moral issues that it seems to bring up. Sparrow, I think you really, um, I think you um, got to the depth of the poem. I think that's where its power is, that it, it asks the reader to think about the relationship between morality, politics, and, uh, and the literary. 
in if you read it closely like we are. Yeah, and I think it it kind of I would say you know just to be needlessly cruel that it uh, it kind of fails over and over again in different directions. Sometimes it's too literary. Sometimes it's too political or too oversimplistically political. Sometimes it's if you can be overly moral, <laughs> maybe it is. And yet, altogether, there is some real strength to the poem. Like, even though it fails here and there or kind of deviates here and there from a center, the poem itself has some strength, internal strength. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's got a lot of corners. It's. I think that it sort of follows on these Auto statements and and then also recursion, like things keep coming back. The child waits for the fire to grow. A plant waits for the fire to grow. A child waits for a siren. There's kind of uh, also this connecting of the childlike to the vegetable, organic-like, and to the palm. Am I making something up? I know it does. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking that it's it's kind of an inconsistent metaphor. A plant waits yeah. for fire to grow. A child waits for a siren. Well, my image of a siren is then you go underground. I don't know what the situation is like in Gaza or in Palestine, but let's suppose at the very least you go under your bed. You you sort of retract rather than grow. Of course, in a sense, you become kind of like a seed. Uh, arguably. Well, I mean, one of the thoughts uh-huh. I had is a, a child waits for a siren. Yeah. It must be a child. That could mean that, it seems to me it could mean that when you hear that siren, everyone becomes a child. Everyone reverts to childhood because just that pure terror that you felt throughout your childhood for various reasons suddenly reasserts itself. Right, except that, let's say, you know, as we're sort of moving toward, she's away from this devastation that is being rained down on where she comes from, Palestine, say. And, you know, in these videos that she's watching, if you want to present to the world depiction of the horrors of war, of aerial attack, of aerial bombardment, isn't it the child that you want to get in the frame? (laughs) Because it's the most affecting point. Because because children, because that's going to most affect people if you have a child. If you're a war photographer, you're looking for a child with uh, his hair all mussed up and sort of this black soot on their face and the clothes torn off. And That's the most affecting image you're going to find. And it's precisely the image you won't find in the American media hmm. when it comes to the um, what's going on in, on the, you know, in the Gaza Strip. You're going to see men. Um, yeah, angry men shaking their fists, looking dangerous like terrorists. Yeah, 
Yeah, whereas if you go to YouTube, you look at YouTube videos um, posted by people who have taken footage on their iPhones, uh, you're going to see a much different face. You're going to see those children. You're going to see elderly. I was impressed uh, on right-wing Twitter after Biden uh, sent the drone in Afghanistan to the wrong place and killed these innocent people. The uh, right-wingers are posting these uh, photos of children on Twitter that were killed by the American drone, and they're like, oh, Biden is a murderer. (laughs) And it's like, we've been killing these kids for 20 years. Like, where were they? You know, they only appear when uh, there's a Democratic president they can blame it on. The whole thing was started by insane, uh, imperialistic Republicans. But uh, when it's uh, convenient, they, they uh, you know, suddenly the children appear and they're, you know, it does break your heart to look at their pictures. Does it break your heart in half? <laughs> Maybe in thirds. Was the grief worth the poem? No. But you don't interrogate a weed for what it does with wreckage, for what it's done to get here. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.